And today we're going to look at uh, verses 12 through uh, 14. The golden rule, something I think we can all get behind, and probably even just saying the golden rule, probably something comes to your mind already of what that is. And uh, Jesus, as he has a way of doing, uh, is going to kind of turn it on its head today as to probably what you think it is. Um, but we've, we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, um, judging others, we've talked about how to pray and what we would ask of God. And in our passage today, uh, let me just read the verses 12 to 14 of Matthew chapter 7. It says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, this first part, there, there seems to be, just kind of at first read, maybe a bit of a disconnect uh, in our verses. Verse 12 is the golden rule, and then verse 13 and 14, he talks about this narrow gate and this wide gate, and, and if you're kind of analytical like me, you ask, well, what, what does one have to do with the other, <laughs> right? And so ho hopefully we'll connect some dots uh, today in this. Uh, but as we start out in verse 12, the golden rule, which we're all familiar with probably some version of this golden rule, um, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, right? Th this makes sense to us, doesn't it? Uh, kind of, you know, some, some faiths would call it karma or something like that. Like whatever you put into the world is what you get out of the world. You know, that, that kind of an idea. Um, every religious system or belief, uh, faith out there has some version of this golden rule, of what we call uh, the golden rule. Jesus wasn't actually the first one to say something like this. That may surprise you to know. Um, in fact, uh, just to give you an example... Uh, something I, I discovered this week as I was reading is in about AD 20, so this is during uh, the time of Jesus, there was a Jewish rabbi uh, who was challenged by a Gentile man to summarize the law in the short time that the Gentile man could stand on one leg. So kind of a silly challenge, but he threw it down. And so as he was standing on one leg, the rabbi responded by saying, what is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law, all the rest is commentary go and learn it, right? We, we tend to frame this rule kind of like the rabbi did in, in the negative sense. Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. This is not hard, right? Do you want to be killed? No. Well, then don't kill anybody. Not that hard to restrain ourselves most of the time from like the urge to kill somebody, right? Do, do you want to be stolen from? No. Well, then don't steal from people. Right? Not that hard to restrain ourselves from, from those kinds of things. And, and we tend to, to frame our own version of the golden rule with kind of those big things like killing and stealing and, and, and whatever it is. But Jesus, again, as, as I said, he has this way of kind of turning things on their head. The maxim of the rabbi of Jesus' day and, and others throughout time and history, again, is the negative. Don't do these things that you don't want done to you. Jesus, however, takes this kind of thinking and he frames it, if you notice, not in the negative sense. Jesus doesn't say, don't do the things that you don't want done to you. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, do the things that you want done to you to others. Now, saying don't do the things that you don't want done to you, that's, that's really kind of a passive thing, right? We, we don't often have to try that hard in that regard. 
but Jesus says to do to others as you would have them do to you. It's, it's an active command. Not just to hold back, not just to restrain, but to be intentional in what you do towards others. That's a little bit harder, isn't it? Think about how you want to be treated. How would you like to be treated? I saw a friend of mine the other day posted on Facebook, uh, yet another morning where someone hasn't served me coffee in bed, right? We would love that, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you love to wake up to a nice cup of coffee sitting on your nightstand? Well, have you ever done that for anybody else? (laughs) You probably haven't, right? Jesus' command is not passive, but it's active and it's intentional to do to others as you would have them do to you. And this makes me think of Mark in his gospel. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 tells us, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Jesus did for us as His followers what we were unable to do for ourselves. Jesus didn't come to earth to actively restrain Himself from wiping us all out because of our sin. Right? Jesus came to serve those who He knew beforehand would ultimately nail Him to the cross. Right? There, there was this active, intentional doing on the part of our Savior. And so it would make sense that those who take on the name Christian would look somewhat like the Christ. Right? That, that if we're going to call ourselves Christian, that, that we would live in a Christ-like manner. And a Christ-like manner of living is not to be served, but to serve and to give one's life as a ransom for many. If you think about all the other faiths in the world, whatever religious system one might adhere to, every religion tells you their version of how to find God. Every religion tells you their version of what you ought to do to earn favor to God or to draw near to God. Right? They give you their to-do list. The thing that makes Christianity different from every other system of belief out there is that Christianity says, here's what God has done for you. Here's what God has done to come and find you. Here's how God has pursued you when you were running the other way. The Christian God has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so it makes sense that that person is the one that would also say to you and me, do to others as you would have them do to you. To be active, not passive. To be intentional in your doing. The character of the Christ, the character of our Messiah, the character of our Savior is an outward character that looks to the interests of others. And our Bible tells us that we ought to look not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Our Bible tells us that we ought to consider others even better than ourselves. I've talked about this before. I'm the best person I know in the world. But, the, but my Bible tells me to consider others better than me, right? And it tells you the same thing, that we ought to look out for the interests of, of one another. And so this so-called golden rule isn't, isn't just a cute maxim that makes sense. It's not a, not a, a cute saying that, that resonates with us, that makes sense to us. This is not about getting out of the world what you put into the world. Right? There are a lot of believers out there in, in karma or something like karma, 
Our, our Bible tells us that, that we're sinful to the core, that we're not good people, that, that we're sinners in need of a Savior. And our Bible tells us that there's no amount of good that we can put into the world that will earn us favor with God. If that were true, there would be no need for Christ to die for our sins. Right? If, if there were any, any chance whatsoever that we could rectify this thing, there, there would be no need for the work of Christ, and we'll talk about that more here in a moment. But consider for now, consider for now what it, what it is that God would call you to do in service to others. One of my favorite authors, Tim Keller, has written a book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And, and it's all about how taking our eyes off of ourselves is a liberating thing. Taking our eyes off of ourself is extremely liberating. What we're going to find out here in a moment is that Jesus tells us that there's, there's a way to live that leads to life, and there's a way to live that leads to death. And the way that leads to life is not by having this inward focus. I think it was the theologian Augustine, or Augustine, however you prefer to announce, pronounce his name, uh, coined a phrase in his day, a Latin phrase that was called incurvatus in se. And, and what that means is that, that humanity has turned in on itself, that humanity is inward. And, and somebody who came after Augustine, whose name I can't remember, took that a little bit further and added to the Latin phrase, ecclesia incurvatus in se. And what that means is that the church has turned in on itself. The, the idea that Augustine promoted and the idea that people after Augustine promoted is that the Christian life is not an inward life, that it's an outward life. There's a Latin phrase that I don't remember that's the opposite of incurvatus in se that means that we're curved upward, outward and upward, outward towards others and upward towards God. And this is where Jesus gets into this idea of the narrow gate and the wide gate. In verse 13, he tells us to enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. We're, we're told right here by Jesus that our, our default position as humans is that we're, we're on the path that's going to the wide gate with everybody else. Right? We're on a path that leads to destruction. It's a wide path. It's an easy path. It's a popular path. Right? Everybody's on it, we're told, or many are on it. So the majority are on this path. The Apostle John in John chapter 3, verse 36 put it this way. He said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. He doesn't say that the wrath of God comes down on the one who doesn't obey God, but the wrath of God remains on the one who doesn't obey God, meaning that the wrath of God was already there. Right? The one who doesn't obey God has a default position of being under judgment. The Apostle Paul put it this way, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Are, are you excited yet about this? <laughs> this, is, this is kind of hard. These are hard words, right? These are, these are heavy words. 
The Apostle Paul tells us that our default as human beings is that we were dead in our trespasses and dead in our sins. He says, in which you once walked, he's talking to a group of believers, reminding them from where they came. He reminds us that, that we all at one time in our life followed the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, following the devil. And he says it's this spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, the many who are on the wide path, this is the spirit that's at work. And again, he reminds us among whom we all once lived. And so if you sit here today and you claim the title Christian, Paul is giving us a dose of humility here, reminding us you were once one of those people that you maybe scoff at and look down upon. You used to be one of them. Remember that in humility and be thankful for what God has done in your life and be compassionate for those who were once where you were. Paul tells us that we were by nature children of wrath. Again, our default position that we are born, we come into this world under the wrath of God for our sinfulness. And this goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis. Original sin, the doctrine of original sin. Adam and Eve, the first human beings, rebelled against God and everybody that came after them inherited that rebellion. It's kind of hereditary in a spiritual sense that we've inherited this rebellion that started with the first human beings ever created. Adam and Eve, for a time, had perfect relationship with God. It wasn't broken. It wasn't marred by sin. And when they rebelled, that relationship became broken and became marred by sin. And every human being after them, from then until right now, and up until the time that Jesus returns at some future date, the relationship between creator and creation has been broken by sin. And because this is true, God so loved the world that we're told in John chapter 3 that he did what? That he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. When sin entered the world, God's plan was set in motion to redeem the relationship between creator and creation that was broken by sin. And so in our text today, Jesus tells us that the path is wide that leads to destruction. The number of people that are on this wide path that are by nature children of wrath, it's many. And part of the reason likely for the popularity of this path is that it's a pretty easy path to walk. It's not hard. It's not hard to follow the masses, is it? It's not hard at all. Matter of fact, I think some people follow the masses just because they don't want to be alone apart from the masses. That's part of what makes it an easy path to walk. But even though it's easy and even though many are on it, we're reminded by Scripture that the people on that path are under the wrath of God. The people on that path are on their way to destruction. Do you ever think about that just in the day-to-day -day life? Think about how many people are on a crash course with hell. And that, that ought to, as followers of Christ, it ought to break our hearts. It shouldn't cause us to be angry at the masses that are going in this direction. Often we are, right? <laughs> we look at the ills of the world and, and it makes us mad. I read the news and I, I get angry when I read the news about the things that are going on in our world. But I'm, but I'm reminded when I come to passages like this that 
people are blinded by sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us that the God of this age, the devil, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. And so it's the blind leading the blind, right? In a direction that ultimately we know is going to lead to their destruction. And I've said this many times before, if our, if our reaction to that is to be angry and offended, and, and I'm, I spend plenty of time angry and offended, right? If our reaction is anger and offense at blind people not knowing where they're going, then, then we, we we're missing something in the gospel. There's a disconnect in what we believe, or at least what we say we believe to be true. And so my encouragement to us today as we consider these things, as we consider the golden rule, think about if, if you were a blind person going somewhere and you were about to run into a wall or you were about to walk out into traffic, would you not hope that somebody would say, hey, buddy, you're stepping out into traffic or stop you from doing what you're about to do, right? Consider that when you think about the golden rule to do for others as you would have them do for you. If roles were reversed and if you were on a crash course with the wrath of God and the judgment of God, would you not want somebody in your life to tell you that you're on that crash course? And if you don't do it, who will? Do to others as you would have them do to you because the path is wide that leads to destruction and it's many who are on this easy path. In verse 14, Jesus says that the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Again, Jesus is saying here that there's a way of living that leads to life and there's a way of living that ultimately leads to death. And every one of us is on one path or the other. Every one of us is on a path that either leads to our destruction or it leads to our life. The way that leads to life is unpopular and it's difficult, but it is the Christian life. There are many Christian preachers out there who would preach a message to you that says that God wants you to have kind of your best life here and now. There are many Christian preachers that would preach to you that God doesn't ever want you to be sick and God doesn't want you to be poor. God wants you to have everything that you want to have. And we would call that a false gospel. Is God for us? Absolutely. Does God care for the things in this life, our, our needs, and does God provide for us? Absolutely, He does. But what does that look like? Ask the Apostle Paul what that looks like. The Apostle Paul, as you may know, before he came to faith in Christ, he had a standing in the world. He was somebody. He was respected and he was revered well-educated, came from a good family line. He was somebody. And the moment that he came to Christ, his life became exponentially more difficult. Paul was a persecutor of the church before he came to faith in Christ. And when he became a Christian, he became persecuted for Christ. There, there perhaps was no greater evangelist that's ever lived than the Apostle Paul. And life was hard for him. You ever wonder what it was like to be the Apostle Paul and to get on a boat wondering if you know, it's going to crash before it gets to where it goes? Paul, every town that he went to, 
feared that he might be in prison. There was an instance in Paul's life where they had to lower him down a wall at night because he was in fear for his life because people didn't like what he had to say. The Apostle Paul had a, had a moment where people caught him and they drug him outside of the town and they stoned him, meaning they threw rocks at him to try to kill him. And it's debatable in Scripture whether he actually died, but it, but it seems like he might have died. And maybe God breathed life into him. And you know what he did? He didn't go to the next town. He went back into that town where they tried to kill him to preach the gospel. That, that's not necessarily living your best life now, in, in a sense. In a sense, it is. In, in our sense, in our worldly, fleshly sense, that's not living our best life now, but that's the life that the Apostle Paul had. If you've ever read your church history about the apostles, the, the men that walked with Jesus and how they died, every single one of them died as a martyr. Every single one of them died because of their faith. Every single one. Peter, they crucified him on a cross like Jesus, but at his request, he was crucified upside down because he didn't want to die in the same manner as his Savior did. He didn't think he was worthy of it. There's a way of living that leads to death, and there's a way of living that leads to life. And I'm not talking about temporal life or temporal death, but eternal life and eternal death. That's what Jesus is talking about here. The narrow path, again, it's unpopular, it's difficult, but it's the Christian life. The way that leads to death, it's popular, and it's easy, and it's our default. It's the course that we're set upon, upon entry to this world. The, the dilemma is this, how do we course correct? If our default is that we are, by nature, children of wrath, if our default is that we're on the wide, popular, easy path that ultimately leads to destruction, then it's obvious that a course correction is needed, but how do we do that? How do, how do we change our trajectory? Because the Bible would very clearly tell us that we're incapable. What we just read from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, we're, we're not capable of making a course correction. We're not capable of recognizing I'm on this path to death and I need to go on this path to life. And even if we could recognize that, which we can't, but even if we could, how can we change our, our course? We need an intermediary. We need somebody that's going to help us to change our course and get us on the right path. I think you know where this is going. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Wide is the path that leads to destruction, and many are on it. So even if we recognize over here Jesus is the way, again, we still have this dilemma. What, what do I, how, how do I go from wide path to narrow path? Even if I wanted to, how do I do this? Ephesians chapter 2, by nature we're children of wrath. Ephesians 2 verse 3. Ephesians 2 verse 4 says, But in light of the fact that you are by nature on this crash course with death and destruction, in light of the fact that you are by nature a child of wrath, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here's the good news. The bad news is that we're, we're on the wrong path. We're, we're on a crash course. The good news is that, that God has offered to us a course correction for those who would come to Him in repentance and faith, for those who would recognize that they are by nature children of wrath, who would recognize their sinfulness, who would recognize the rebellion that they inherited from Adam and Eve all through humanity from then until now, who would recognize that and who would trust in the work of Christ on the cross, who did for us what we could never do for ourselves, that through an act of grace, through an act of mercy, something that we don't deserve, that He's given to us, that we would believe that in faith. Right? We're, we're told that we're saved by grace, by God's grace, an act of God's grace alone, through faith. And the Bible tells us that it's even God who gives us faith. We, we're not the originator of our own faith, right? God is the author of our faith, Hebrews 12 tells us. So even the faith that's needed to trust in Him is, comes as a gift from God. It's a grace of God. It's not our doing. It's a gift from Him, not the result of anything that we've done. In other words, we can't be over here on the wide path and decide, you know what, I need to clean up my life and get my act together. We, we can't do enough good things that will take us from the wide path to the narrow path. We can't. We're incapable of, of our own course correction. It's a gift of God, not a result of anything that we've done so that we can't say, look at me and look at what I've done. For the Christian, we have to look at God and say, look at what God has done for me. God has done for me something I could never do for myself. And when that becomes true in our life, the result of it is that Christians start to look like the Christ. We start to not demand or expect to be served, but we look for opportunities to serve. So our golden rule then doesn't become the negative, passive, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you but it becomes an active and intentional way of living that says, what can I do for others that I would like for them to do for me? And the, and the end goal is not doing for others so they will do for you. That's not the end goal for the Christian. I, I used to work for somebody years ago whose mantra was that in order to get everything you want in life, you have to help enough other people get what they want. For this person, it was a numbers game. If I help enough people achieve success in their life, then karma is going to give me success in my life. So even though by all appearances, this was a very kind and generous person, he was motivated really by selfish reasons. I'm going to do for others so that the universe will do for me. 
That's not, that's not what Jesus is saying here. That's not the Christian mantra. The Christian mantra is to do for others because of what God has done for me. Because of what God has done for me, I'm now free to live a life that, that's not in curvatus in se, that's not turned in on myself. I'm free to now live a life that's turned outward and upward because of the truth of the gospel, because of the grace of God. Does, it, does that make sense to us? Can, can we connect those dots? And so Jesus isn't giving us a command that simply is a means to an end. He's not telling us to do for others so that others will do for us. He, he's reminding us in these short verses of what he's done for us, liberating us to stop thinking about ourselves, liberating us to stop being turned inward, freeing us to be turned outward and freeing us to look for opportunities to do and to serve just like he did, just like Jesus did. Jesus could have showed up, I don't know if you ever thought about this, Jesus could have showed up on scene any way that he wanted to, right? When the father told the son, it's time, it's time for you to go to earth, he could have showed up as a, as a big strong guy on a horse with a sword and a shield ready to take names. He could have. That day's coming, but, but it wasn't then. Right? He, he could have showed up easily and said, I've got some problems with you people. There's some things we need to talk about. Right? Humanity's gone off the rails and I'm here to straighten you out. <laughs> no. The God of the universe stepped into human flesh as a baby humble and meek, needed to be fed, needed to be changed, needed to be cared for, had a mom and dad that looked after him. That's the God of the universe that stepped into human flesh, lived among us and lived like we lived, ultimately was rejected by those who ultimately belonged to him already, his creation, rejected him. Yet he came with this attitude that I'm, I'm going to serve the people that are ultimately going to kill me. If you knew somebody was going to end your life, would you do anything for them? Probably not. I wouldn't. Jesus, Jesus knew. Like he, This wasn't a surprise to Jesus. Like how, how did this happen? Jesus knew what he was signing up for. And yet he came not to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to do for others without expectation of reciprocation. Many of our relationships that you and I have uh, are very transactional. You ever lost a friend? Why, why did you lose a friend? They probably did something to make you mad, right? They probably offended you in some way. They hurt you in some way. And so you cut off the relationship, right? We can be friends as long as long, like you do for me, I'll do for you. But when you don't do for me, I'm not going to do for you, right? That's how, that's how we work in, in, as humans, very transactional. Jesus didn't work that way at all. If Jesus worked transactionally like you and I did, he, he wouldn't have lasted. He would have went home. He, he would have went back to heaven and, and took his seat in heaven if he looked at relationships as transactional. You do for me, I'll do for you. came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
And so again, as Christians, our, our life ought to look somewhat like the Christ. Right? He's perfect. We're not. We're, we're not going to look perfectly like him. We're just not. We're incapable of it. But as Christians, because of what he's done for us, again, we're liberated and we're freed to look for opportunities to do for others. And my encouragement to you today, oftentimes, maybe I'll frame it this way, when people come to us and they're just having a difficult time in life, our encouragement to them often is to look for opportunities to serve in the church. Not because we need it, although we do, but, but not because we need it. It's because you need to get your eyes off yourself in the middle of this difficulty. And one of the best ways to do that is to start looking to others and looking at areas where you can help and where you can serve. Opportunities to do for others as you would have them do for you. The freedom of self-forgetfulness. And so again, this golden rule as we wrap up is not, it's not, a, it's not a passive, like don't kill anybody because you don't want to be killed. It's not a passive thing like that. Jesus is commanding us to actively pursue opportunities to serve others. And that command is coming from the one who served others and ultimately gave his life in service to others. And, and can, you, can you imagine, just think about the ills in our world right now. If everybody who professes to be a Christian would just do this, can you imagine what our world might look like right now? Probably would look quite a bit different than it does at the moment. Right? We kind of live in this way where it's like every man for themselves. Right? I got to protect me and I got to protect mine. I got to do for me and I got to do for mine. But but if if all of us would walk the narrow path, and I suppose all of us can't walk the narrow path, otherwise it wouldn't remain narrow. But, but, but at least if those who profess to follow Christ would live as if they actually follow Christ, I think the result that we would see in our world would be nothing short of remarkable. And so whether that happens or not, I, I don't know, but, but maybe for us here, right? what are we, 30 people here, 35 people, something like that, what if we just started to live this way in our community, looking for opportunities to serve and to do for others, forgetting about ourselves, being turned outward and upward? What, what could a small group of 30 or so people, like what kind of impact would that have on our community? I think it would be nothing short of remarkable. And I think when the opportunities come to talk to people about Christ, I think living this way, to some extent, kind of earns us a platform to be heard. You ever, you ever, you know any people that you would consider like annoying Christians? I, I know many. Not, not, not here. None of you. None of you. But, <laughs> but, but I'm talking about like you know the people on the street corner shouting the bullhorn, you know, turn or burn, you know, those, those kinds of things. I just don't want to hear what those people have to say. But for the person that serves me, not that I'm looking to be served, but like you know, someone who, who's outward and upwardly focused, I, I might be interested in what that person has to say as they invest in my life, right? So, so you might find that, that you'll earn yourself a platform in the lives of the people that, that you know when Christians begin to look like the Christ. Right? It's when Christians don't look like the Christ, that's where the disconnect becomes. A watching world says like something doesn't add up there. But when Christians begin to look like the Christ, 
you might be surprised at how many opportunities you get to tell people, this is why I live the way that I live, right? And so we've talked about some hard things today about humanity being under the wrath of God and, and us by nature being under the wrath of God. That's a hard message to hear. But, but the good news for those of us that have had that course correction and have gone from the wide path to the narrow path, that we now have a rescue mission for those that are still on the wide path. Like the Bible tells us that we have the ministry of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians 5, that, that it ought to be our job as Christians not to look at those on the wide path and be mad at them or offended, but to be heartbroken and that we would engage in a rescue mission to help them course correct as we've been helped in our course correction. Does that make sense? And so I would ask you this morning to consider, consider people in your own life that need a course correction and ask God to help you, to help them. I was talking to somebody the other day, and I'd heard a saying a long time ago, and we were talking about a, a particular person uh, in our life who we see is on the wide path. And I was reminded of something that somebody said years ago that I read that said, you can pray for a hole, and at the same time, you can pick up a shovel. And in this conversation with me and my friend, we both agreed, like, we've been praying for a hole for a long time, but it's time for us to pick up a shovel as well, right? It's time for us to start digging while we pray, right, that God would do what he needs to do. And so that would be my encouragement to you today is that you can pray for the people on the wide path that you know, but maybe, maybe it's time to engage in some way. Maybe it's time to engage. Maybe it's time to, to be outward and upward uh, in your engagement with the world because there is no other way to the Father except through Jesus. He's the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. God, we're thankful this morning. Thankful that you didn't leave us on the wide path. God, thankful that you uh, pursued humanity when humanity was running hard and is running hard far from you. Thankful that you love us so much that you would go to the extent of giving your only son so that those who would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So Father, help us as Christians, help us as the church uh, to do our part in engaging the world with the truth of the gospel. It would be our prayer, God, that, that our church wouldn't be uh, just a club or an infinity group or anything like that, but that we would um, welcome outsiders uh, because we know that they need to hear the truth of the gospel and we know that they need course corrected just like we've needed course corrected. And so God, help us uh, in those efforts. Help us to engage uh, in a way that shows a watching world that we love and that we care about them. Uh, but more than that, Father, through these efforts, pray that you would continue to bring people in our midst to faith in you. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.